Good to be uh, with you. It's always good to be with you. It's good to see a great number here at the start of a new school year. Uh, those of you who don't know you know me. Uh, my name is Johnny. I'm a Baptist pastor down in Green Island, and no one knows where Green Island is. It's a wee bump in the road between Belfast and, well, Jordanstown and Carrickfergus. I don't even know where it is. Um, but yeah, I'm working down there. I'm married to Laura. And we've got three girls who are mad. We've got twins who are four, uh, Beth and Erin, and then our older girl, Anna. And this week, uh, Laura's away in the States, and I'm in trouble when she gets back because our house is a mess. Uh, I was up at six this morning dealing with a mountain of laundry, and it's not good. So um, if this is a wee bit ropey tonight, um, I apologize. But uh, really encouraged, just as we heard that read to us. Um, let me just read verse 13 again. We thank God constantly that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. It's the word of God. That gives me great comfort. Nobody here needs to hear me tonight, uh, but we're here to hear God and hear his word. I don't know if you've ever uh, run a marathon or played a team sport. Uh, I'm not particularly a sporty person, but later in life I've uh, done a wee bit of running. And there's something about uh, when you're running along, if there's people on the sideline uh, cheering you, it really lifts your spirits, it really energizes you and gives you that extra push. And I never really would have believed that until uh, I ran a marathon myself. Uh, I'm no Mo Farah, uh, and the race uh, when I ran the Belfast Marathon was hideous, especially the last two miles. Uh, But here's the picture. as I turned onto the Ravenhill Road, which any of you have ever seen is a pretty long road, there were a couple of wee lads from our church on the corner yelling my name, and I nearly cried. I felt so bad. And then I ran down more, and there were some Christians from the Ulster Temple out, and they were playing worship music, as Christians do, and giving out jelly babies, as Christians do. And then on the corner, I spotted Laura, my wife, and the girls, and they had these huge big signs up, Run Daddy, Keep Her Lit. Uh, And then on the final stretch, uh, one of my good friends from church who's interning with me, he decided he'd run with me, and he said, it's the quietest he's ever experienced me. I literally had nothing to say, no energy at all. That's a whole lot of encouragement right there. Uh, But at that particular time, encouragement is what I needed. Uh, The problem was I hadn't paced myself. I'd set off too quick, and so near the end of the race, I was destroyed. I was near the point of quitting altogether. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about uh, Paul's letters, these pastoral letters. Uh, These are written by the Apostle Paul, and really his desire here is to stand on the sideline and to cheer us on, to encourage us, uh, to spur us on that we might keep going and run the race and win the prize. And You were in chapter 1 last week, and and chapter 1, really, uh, Paul explores the fact that these uh, Thessalonians had started the race well. Uh, They weren't like me. They they were pacing themselves. Uh, In fact, they were running a good race. Uh, They were a solid wee church. Uh, They were doing well spiritually. They had a good testimony. There was spiritual fruit in their lives. The gospel seed had landed in good soil. And so chapter 1, Paul just commends them. He just stands at the sidelines, and he urges them on. And folks, I believe that all of us need that in the Christian life. You can't do the Christian life solo. Uh, The Christian life is full of obstacles. Uh, It's a long distance, and sometimes we run out of steam. Sometimes we realize that we can't do it in our own wisdom or strength. 
Sometimes we find that we're tripped up in sin or we're in danger even of disqualifying ourselves. Sometimes in this marathon we grow weary or we almost collapse in exhaustion or shrink back in unbelief. And so it's really, really important that you have people in your life like the Apostle Paul that are going to cheer you on. They're going to commend you. They're going to look at your life and, and try to see fruit, try to see evidence of God's spirit at work and literally just, just point it out for you. And folks, I want to ask you, who are those people in your life? Who is it that's cheering you on? Who's looking out for you and your spiritual progress? Who's praying for you or supporting you? Who is it or who are the group of people in your life that are willing to say the things you need to hear, not just the things you want to hear? Where are you getting fellowship from? Who's pushing you on? Because that's what the Apostle Paul's doing here with the Thessalonians. He's, he's trying to push them on. And really, that's why I drove down here tonight from Green Island. And not to hear the sound of my own voice, but I'm trusting and I'm asking God, God, push them on. God, you know, I don't know many of you here at all. I don't know where you're at in the race. Some of you maybe haven't even started the race. Maybe you don't even know Jesus yet. But wherever you're at tonight, I pray that you'll hear something that will push you on. I pray that the ministry of CE will push you on, will spur you to be the men and women that God's called you to be. I'm just going to get stuck into the, the passage, and I'm literally just going to go verse by verse and explore what is it Paul's saying here. And really this, this passage, he's, he, he's done with commending the Thessalonians, and now he's commending himself. That doesn't sound good, does it? I mean, we don't like to commend ourselves talk about ourselves. Uh, we prefer to be a humble people, uh, sometimes a self-deprecating people. So what on earth is Paul doing, commending himself and commending his approach to ministry? Well, really, I think he's, he's setting forward an example here. He identifies that this is a teaching moment, and so he's not going to keep his cards close to his chest. He's kind of going to bear who he is, to these Thessalonians. He's going to share with them uh, the motivations of his heart and his struggles and the joys that he feels in ministry and also the frustrations. And that really speaks to me as a pastor. That's what I think Christian leaders should do. I don't think that Christian leaders should appear all together and yet distant. Uh, we should be open in fact, a couple of weeks ago at our church, uh, we did a thing called Grill an Elder, uh, where basically two of the elders were grilled for an hour by a couple of the young guys in our church. And it was basically an all-access pass to their life. And they were asked stories, uh, you know, questions about different aspects of their personal life, their, their work life, their spiritual life. And why I wanted to do that was this. I said to the elders, I was like, guys, we can't expect people in this church to talk openly and enthusiastically about their experience of God if we're not willing to do that ourselves. And really that's what Paul here is doing. He's, he's going to be open. He's going to be transparent about who he is and, and what makes him tick. And he's not doing that so that we'll all give him a pat on the shoulder and think he's great. He's doing that because he's, he's setting forward here an example of what it looks like for us to follow Jesus, to be authentic and to run in the race. So he begins here, verse 1, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you wasn't in vain. In other words, the gospel seed went into the ground and it started to grow and that's great. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of conflict. So the first thing Paul tells us here is that his, that his ministry is one of boldness. He doesn't shrink back. 
He doesn't give way to fear or inhibition when it comes to speaking up or, or speaking out about Jesus. He doesn't look for conflict, but he doesn't shy away from it either. And the reason is this, because Paul realizes what you and I need to realize. He realizes that eternity is important and that people are important and that God's glory is important. And so he's going to speak up. He's going to share the good news of Jesus. And so I want to ask you, what about you? Are you prepared to speak up? Do you believe that eternity is real? Do you believe that people need to be saved? Do you believe that Jesus is the way? Are you willing to speak up? Even if speaking up means crossing the pain barrier. I was reading a wee book recently called Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice. I know he's one of Gilly's heroes. And this is what he says about this whole need for us to be bold in our evangelism. He thinks... He says, think how incendiary what we believe really is. We Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to know God. We believe that the cross is the only way to be forgiven. And we believe that one day every human being will be judged. So if you're going to talk to people about Jesus, folks, you're going to get hurt. It's going to sever relationships. It's going to provoke people or annoy people. Not every time, depending on circumstances or or friendship groups. But it's not going to be easy. In fact, he says, sometimes we're going to get hit. And let's be honest, you and I don't want to get hit. And so suddenly, he says, we, you know, when we become Christians, we're, we're really open, we're really transparent, we're really keen and enthusiastic to talk about the gospel. But then as we go on in the Christian journey, we become a wee bit more reticent, a wee bit more hesitant about sharing the good news of Jesus. But he says this, he says, taking the hits is normal. Jesus himself said that this is how it would be. When he sent his disciples out on their own for the first time to tell other people about him, here's how he described the mission. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And this is why Paul said he had to be bold. He had to take seriously the call of God to share the gospel. You know, sometimes I think that as Christians, we are so busy trying to prove that we are just like everybody else. And that may be the case, but we have a message that is like nothing else, nothing else that the world has. And so that is inevitably going to annoy people and provoke people and maybe even sever relationships. So boldness is needed. But secondly, he says that integrity is needed. Integrity is needed in your life. He says this in verse 3 and and in verse 10. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Verse 10, Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless is our conduct toward you. In other words, Paul is saying, Do you know what? Who I am in private is the same as who I am in public. Following Jesus for me is, is not just a matter of nice sermons or ministry. It's a matter of personal follow-through and conviction. And folks, I want to ask, what about you? Is there integrity in your walk with Jesus? I mean, strip away all the meetings you attend, whether it's CE or CU. Strip away all the Christian circles that you move in or the kind of Christian language that you speak or the songs that you sing and the books that you read or all that good stuff. Is it obvious that God has captured your heart? Even without all those things. Is it obvious if I'm a fly on the wall of your life 
that you're in love with Jesus and that you want to honor him more than anything else. Not just in the big things or the upfront things, but the wee personal things. I'm talking here about the decisions that you make, the things you do or the things you choose not to do because you desperately, desperately want to honor God. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'm talking about things like you resolve before God that you're not going to look at pornography, that you're not going to waste your brain cells and deaden your soul by just watching endless box sets, that you're not going to jump in on the latest bit of gossip or backstab so-and-so, or you're going to get out of your comfort zone and talk to the person on the edge of the room and not just go to the people that are just like you all the time. See, this is what integrity really looks like. It's doing stuff, or maybe even not doing stuff, even if nobody else notices, you're doing it before the face of God. Verses 4 to 6, he also talks about this desire that dwells within all of us to please people, and how he resists that. He, He resists that temptation. And folks, that's really hard, isn't it? Because none of us want to be excluded. All of us want to be well thought of. And what Paul's saying here is this. He's not saying, I go out of my way to be annoying or to stick out or just to be a pain in the butt. He's not saying that at all. But he's saying, fundamentally in my life, I realize that what is more important than pleasing people is pleasing God, is being faithful to God and the call that God has laid on my life, the call to teach the truth of his word. You know, when I think about this, this kind of pleasing people versus pleasing God, uh, I'm reminded of a wee uh, poem that was actually written by uh, Mother Teresa. And she says this, she says, People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Just be kind anyway. If you're successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies, but succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you, but be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others might destroy overnight, but go ahead, create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous, but be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow, but do good anyway. Give the best you have. It may never be enough, but give it anyway, because in the final analysis... It's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm not saying that it's not about people. Of course it's about people. So much of ministry is about people. But it can't be about pleasing people. It's about pleasing God. It's about moving the heart of God and honoring him. I wonder is that the priority in your life? Verses 7 to 8, he he reveals another aspect of his his ministry, of his personality. He says that he approaches these Thessalonians like a selfless mother. The language here is actually a nursing mother. And I can tell you there's nothing more selfless than a mother nursing her child. Uh, And I have a bit of experience in this because we've had twins and we've had to feed both of them. Obviously, I fed with a bottle, not a boob. Uh, But the point is, see, I thought that would make you laugh. The point is... When you're a nursing mother, you've just got to be available. You've got to be available day and night, and it's exhausting. But you've just got to do what has to be done, because these wee kids are dependent on you, and because God has entrusted them to you and called you to love them unconditionally. 
And really that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I made myself available to these Thessalonians. There were no, dis- no restrictions. Ministry for me was not a nine-to-five kind of deal. The Christian life isn't a nine-to-five thing. It's about sharing my life with people. Sharing my life with them. And maybe you know people like that. People who are just available. And people who are just consistent and willing to share their life. I don't want to embarrass him, but I know for a fact that Gilly is one of those people. And that many of you have found that through your experience through the years at CE, that he does so much more than put on events and programs. He has time for you and wants to share his life for you. And I just think that that's really commendable. Verse 9, Paul continues, he says, not only that, but I was sacrificial. I I didn't pick up a paycheck. I actually worked a job on the side. I I made tents because I knew the limitations of the church financially, and I didn't want to burden them. In other words, Paul didn't have a sense of entitlement. Paul didn't think that he was the stuff. He wouldn't have come in here tonight like me and sat at the front row. He just kind of got on. He was behind the scenes and he was faithful. And then verse 11 to 12, he says, not only was, a, was he a mother to them in terms of caring for them, but he instructed them like a father. And I love this. In other words, Paul didn't want these believers to be aimless in their spiritual lives. He wanted them to have a sense of direction. He wanted them to, to grow, not to waver. He wanted them to make progress, not to stagnate. And what's the key instruction that that Paul speaks to them as a spiritual father? Listen to what he says. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of God, worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. And really that's the main point of this passage, if not the entire book. Paul wants to relate to us this, this idea that we are called to walk worthily before God. And all those characteristics I just mentioned, Paul's boldness, his integrity, his selflessness, his willingness to sacrifice, that's what a worthy walk looks like. That's what the overflow of of a worthy walk really is. That's what he's trying to, to communicate to these Thessalonians. That when these characteristics are in your life, then, then really it, it's obvious to people that Jesus is at the center that Jesus is the one that you reverence and you adore and you find satisfying and you put your hope in. Walking worthily of God is definitely about character. It's not about having character like Paul. It's actually about having character like Jesus. Because think about everything Paul's told us so far, everything he's said about himself and and his ministry, you could actually say in a much greater sense about Jesus. I mean, who else possessed boldness like Jesus Christ? Jesus, when he came to this earth, stood against the forces of nature and religion and government, and he did it to rescue people like you and me. Or who else has integrity like Jesus? Jesus doesn't have any skeletons in the closet. No compromise, no inconsistencies. Jesus Christ is truth itself. He is perfect love and full of grace. And who is there who has sacrificed to the extent of which Jesus has sacrificed? 
The Bible says that Jesus left the splendor of heaven for the squalor of earth, that he embraced humanity in all its lowliness and filth and limitations. And then ultimately, after living a life of perfect obedience, he bore the shame of a cross and he endured the punishment that we deserved. There's no sacrifice like the sacrifice Jesus has made for us. And so, yes, it's fair to say that that walking worthy of God is about submitting every area of our lives and our relationships and our resources, every single area, giving it over to Jesus and striving to become more and more and more like Jesus. But there's a second thing, a final thing that I want to say here about walking worthily of God. To walk worthy of God is not just about you and I having a change of character. It's not just about us becoming like Jesus. It actually also requires a change of perspective. Walking worthy of God requires a change of character, but also a change of perspective. Notice how Paul issues this call or, or frames it. He, he, he calls us to walk worthy, and then he turns our minds to the big picture of eternity. He says we are to walk in a manner worthy of God who has called us into his kingdom and glory. In other words here, he's making a link between our way of life here and now and our eternal calling. And that's really important, folks. In other words, Paul is challenging us here, Christians, Remember the bigger picture. View your life in the light of eternity. Consider the hope of heaven. Because that's what you're aiming for in this race. This race is is not about getting onto the next loop. It's about getting to the finish line. And heaven and the kingdom of God and the glory to come in the presence of Jesus, that's the finish line. That's what we're aiming for. And folks, I don't know why it is, but so often as believers, we do not talk about what comes next. If you flick forward in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there's a really famous passage, and it begins like this. I'm not going to read it all and steal somebody's thunder through the next couple of weeks, but it says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And that's a really well-known passage because, sadly, it's always preached at funerals. But really, it should be preached when it's not a funeral. See, my fear is that too many Christians only think about heaven when death is just around the corner. But really, we should be thinking about heaven and eternity all the time. Maybe we should have, really, we should have it firmly planted in our minds and in our hearts that this life is not all that there is. Folks, we should not be uninformed. The majority of what we hope for is yet to come. It's in eternity. And Paul says here that that what's going to fuel you, enable you, equip you to have a worthy walk is the hope of heaven. That's what's going to keep you going. I want to give you a really practical illustration of how the hope of heaven is so, so important and why we shouldn't lose it. If you've got a Bible or you've got your phone, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm only going to read a couple of verses here, but it's to give you an example of of why it's so important to have eternity in your mind as we seek to walk worthy of God. 
Again, the, the writer of the Hebrews, he's, he's taking the same approach as Paul. He's, he's spurring us on in the race. And this is what he says. He says, verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. So holiness, a worthy walk, they're the same thing. He's telling us, get up, get going, live for Jesus. Verse 15, see that no one of you fails to obtain the grace of God. In other words, don't be disqualified from the race. Get to the finish line. See that no root of bitterness would spring up or cause trouble, or by it you might become defiled, or that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And this is the bit I want you to hear. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. And afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with many tears. Maybe you remember learning about this guy Esau in Sunday school. He's like uh, the biblical Chewbacca. His name literally means the hairy man. He's the son of Isaac and the brother of Jacob. He maybe is an example of sexual immorality. I don't know. He, he had several pagan wives, and I'm sure his parents weren't happy about that. But, the, but I think the primary problem with, with Esau is this, the problem of his appetite. We're told here Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. And really what's being talked about there is a story back in Genesis 25. And, and the scene is, is quite unbelievable, but it's actually one that's repeated in our lives all the time. Here's the scene. Jacob is cooking a pot of stew and Esau is tired and hungry. In fact, he's so weakened and he's so driven by the basic desire to eat that he kind of loses all sense of the situation. And he's basically like, I'm going to die. And as the result of his sin wasn't so serious, the story would be funny. Perhaps you know people like that who get kind of irrational when they get hungry. Uh, they get hangry, we call it in our house. And unfortunately, that is so often the case with us spiritually, guys. So often when we are confronted with kind of immediate relief, when we're confronted with something that's tempting or sinful, something that might fulfill a hunger in us, in that moment, we lose perspective and we make really foolish choices. And that's what Esau did here. He allowed his appetite for what was right in front of him to override his decision-making process. He loses sight of what is really valuable. His birthright, his birthright, our birthright, is the hope of heaven. The hope that we have been called, 1 Thessalonians 2, into the kingdom, into God's glory. Esau here chooses immediate relief and satisfaction. And folks, isn't that what we do all the time? We choose what's here and now, rather than trusting that God has something so much better in store. We call it pursuing our own happiness. That's kind of like the philosophy of the world we live in. And why shouldn't you? You deserve it. Well, folks, let me say to you that walking worthy of God is not just about what will make you happy. It's about what will make you holy. It's about what will honor God. It's about what will put heaven first. You see, what was happening in this scene with, with Esau and Jacob is so simple 
and yet so profoundly dangerous. I love what Eugene Peterson says about this. He says, watch out for Esau syndrome in your life, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. I wonder how you doing that in your life right now. How are you cashing in the hope of heaven for immediate relief? In what ways are you living unworthily of God? What is it that's trumping your relationship with God? Maybe it's a pleasurable experience or an ambition or an unhealthy relationship, but it's, it's something that's, that's causing you to desire other things more than God. It's something that's causing you to, to sell out your birthright, the, the hope of eternity. How are you walking unworthily of God right now? How are you walking unworthily of the hope of heaven? Because to operate in that way and not to repent is really, really dangerous. We're told that in the end, Esau missed out. We're actually told that he repented, but it didn't work. And I think that's because his repentance wasn't genuine. His repentance was like, you know one of those sorry cards that you made for your mom when you were little? My mom had loads of those things hanging up on the fridge. And I would make these things for her and give them to her. And often my mom would ask me, well, son, what are you sorry for? I didn't know what I was sorry for. Really, I was saying sorry because I wanted the punishment to end. And it's the same with Esau. Esau wasn't actually sorry. He just didn't like the consequence of his sin. But the fact is that Esau, through his poor decision-making, had dishonored God. He'd walked unworthily. How are you walking unworthily of God? What is it in your life that you need to repent of, turn away from, confess to God? Wouldn't it be crazy that you and I would be disqualified from the race over a bowl of stupid stew? That's what happened to Esau. And I've seen that happen to folks who have followed after Jesus for many, many years, get tripped up over something trivial and something not worthwhile. You know, I can't help compare Esau to another great character in the Bible, a guy called Moses. And Moses walked worthily of God. Yeah, he made mistakes along the way, but as he made those mistakes, he repented. He was forgiven. And he also made good choices. In fact, we're told just a chapter earlier in Hebrews 11 that Moses did the very opposite of Esau. Moses lived in Egypt. He lived in the palace of Pharaoh. He could basically have anything or anyone at his disposal. And yet this is the choice he made. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because Moses was looking ahead to his reward. Folks, that's what Paul's encouraging these Thessalonians to do. Look ahead. Look at the finish line. Look at what you've been called to. You've been called to the kingdom of God and to his glory. So put that goal in front of you and get walking. Walk worthily of God because God in his abundant generosity and his amazing grace, he has seen fit to call you to himself. And he's seen fit to call you to so much more. So why would you bother wasting your life 
on what is ultimately worthless. You've been given citizenship in his kingdom. You've been given the hope of of being with him in glory. So run on. Keep on keeping on. Walk on steadily, worthily. And to God be the glory. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's a light to our feet. God, we recognize tonight that we need the wisdom of your word because we make really foolish decisions. God, we need the guidance of your word because so often in life we just get lost. Father, we just in the stillness of this moment confess to you those areas in our lives where we're not walking worthily of you. Where we're not putting you first. Where we're not prioritizing the hope of heaven and and everything that you've called us to. Lord, we give to you those those areas where our lives really have, have been infected with this Esau syndrome where we're running after less as if it's so much more and it's never going to deliver. Father, I pray that you would cause us by your spirit to put Jesus first, to grow in these characteristics of, of boldness and integrity. And Lord, I pray not only for a change of character in us but for a change of perspective God help us to see that following you is about so much more than what we see and experience here and now God your word says that you have set eternity in our hearts and your word tells us that through believing in Jesus you've given us the hope of eternal life so God help us to keep that in front of us And help us to walk worthily, that you would get all the glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.